And I guess when I was looking through the Encounters of Jesus, which is the series that we're going through at the moment, I was trying to find something that would actually challenge me and actually something that I would be really interested in to try and get deeper in and trying to understand a little bit more. So when uh, the idea that uh, the sermon of um, the, in- the encounter with the centurion was on the list, I sort of read it, I was like, this is a really interesting point, because actually when I look at my own life and I sort of think about what my faith looks like, I would say it's minuscule. And I would say, so what Jesus encounters here with the centurion is somebody with great faith. So I guess for me as a human being, I was trying to look at how What does great faith look like? What do I need to do? What steps do I need to take to get great faith? Um, And it reminded me of a scene um, in an illusionist uh, show called Darren Brown. I don't know if people remember him. I don't know where he's gone. Uh, But he doesn't seem to be on TV anymore. Uh, He's probably become a millionaire and, uh, yeah, living on an island. He's disappeared. There you go. Um, But he did this... He did this um, experiment, and he put five, he put ten people in a room. There was a clock on the wall counting down from 100. No, there was a number on the wall, which was 100, and it said, leave through this door. And the room was full of uh, bags and chairs, all of different colors. There were spots on the floor. There was, there was just a, a random array of different colors and shapes, and there was all of these different things. And so he said, all you have to do is leave through that door, and that's it. So these uh, contestants or these participants walked around the room and was trying to work out how can we get that number down. So they would move things from one place to another and they would start to do all these things, but nothing was happening. And then suddenly that number dropped from 100 to 99. And they were like, wait, stop. What did everyone just do? Let's work back and try and work out what pattern of, of, of events led to that number falling. And they kept on doing this. And then they were trying to work out, how can I get that number to fall? Um, And as you can see, you sort of zoom out as as the audience on the TV. And what was happening was that Darren Brown was sitting in another room watching them all. uh, And there was a fish in a fish tank. And there was a line on the fish tank. And every time that fish crossed the line, that number would drop down. But the people in the room was automatically thinking there must be some sort of sequence that I had to do to achieve that. And they were trying to work it out. They were trying to, do I move all the green things in the room to one spot? That moves it down. Do I then create another color? But then maybe that then changes the the sequence. And I think in my life, I think when I approached this, I was trying to find the same thing. What do I need to sort of do that would mean that I will have great faith in the eyes of God? And I think one of the things that I think really challenges me there is around the, um, another encounter with Jesus in Matthew 14, which is when the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee earlier. Uh, there was in another storm. I don't know why they keep going out there, but they did again. Um, and Jesus prays and he calms the storm in Matthew 8. Uh, but this time in Matthew 14, they're in the, they're, they're in the sea again uh, and the storm is there and they're panicking. And I believe it's meant to have gone on for like six hours, eight hours. And Jesus is there praying on the side. Um, I don't know what that says about long term of praying. uh, But Jesus is there on the side um, and he isn't on the boat. And then he goes out and walks towards them. Um, And they see him there. um, And some of them think that he could be a ghost. But then Peter stands up and goes, if your God asked me to walk if you're Jesus, ask me to walk on the water and I will come to you. Uh, and so Peter gets out the boat and starts walking on the water. 
Um, and now I guess at my point, I'm thinking I would still be on the boat. I'd still be holding on. Uh, but Peter, with his faith, gets out of the boat and starts walking towards him. And he starts to sink. Logic starts to kick in. He starts to doubt his own faith that he can walk on this water, which is impossible. And as he sinks, he asks Jesus to help him. And Jesus helps him. Uh, and then as he helps him, it's those killer lines that I think you, you just don't want to hear, which is, oh, you of little faith, how do you doubt? Now, if that is little faith, I think what, I, what, what, what then is the challenge is then what is, what is below that? What is below little faith? What is that faith of the people still on the boat? They didn't even get off the boat. What is the faith of those people on the boat that didn't even think that Jesus would be able to calm the storm? That's minute faith. Like, yes, it's no faith, but there is, like, how small is that faith? And now we're going to meet a guy who Jesus says has great faith. So where is this comparison between the two? So let's go to it. So the, the chapter, the verse. So we're in uh, Luke 7, 1 to 10. Uh, if you want to follow it in your Bibles, do sort of flick to it now. So after he had finished all he was saying in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who builds us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume you to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am too a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So I guess this passage in uh, Luke 7 comes straight after an introduction to the disciples of instructions. Very much words, you should do this and you shouldn't do that. This is what a disciple looks like. But now we get to see that, those examples in practice. We get to see Jesus trying to explain in real terms what does that look like when you go out into the world. And so actually I've sort of cheated here. There's two encounters with Jesus and actually arguably a third. So the first encounter is with the elders. And again, we'll look at that a little bit. Then there's the encounter with the centurion. And again, I'll look at that. And then the third one, which I won't look at, but actually is highly significant, that the other encounter is of the, of the healed servant. And actually, it plays a very small role in this. If you think that somebody has been saved from death, uh, miraculously healed, but actually, in this sort of passage, it falls to the background of the importance of the other two encounters, far more important and far more what Luke is trying to get across um, in this message or what Jesus is trying to get across in this message. Um, so, setting the scene, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 7, 1 to 3, um, after he had finished all he was saying in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. 
Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to his elder, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servants. So I guess that this is just setting the scene. And I guess what we learn here from this very start is that, and actually a little bit of background is that centurions weren't rare. It wasn't something that you would hardly see. You would see centurions walking about, especially if you're an occupying force. You would have your soldiers being seen and well-known, and and they would be be doing a bit of diplomacy as well. So it wouldn't just be them being uh, left or them being hiding away. The people would know what a centurion was. Uh, Servants weren't rare either. Uh, people had servants, they did their bidding. Um, and also, servants being ill wasn't rare either. There wasn't no NHS. Um, the life expectancy of people were far lower. Um, illness happened. So again, some of these events aren't that rare. But what is some of the interesting elements in this is that one is that this servant was particularly valued by the centurion and in other uh, ver- in other translations, it says special or precious. And again, that would have been rare. That would have been a rare account that even the centurion would have known the name of the servant that was serving them, let alone causing quite a big excitement around this, which again, we'll look at later. But in terms of there's a high risk for the centurion doing this. And again, some of the things that the centurion says um, is quite um, prerogative to, to the role that he has um, in in the area. The fact is that the centurion has even gone to the Jews and to Jesus to help him. Would have been seen as a weakness to the centurion. He would have been strong. This is Rome. This is, we are the occupying force. We know how to heal our servants. We know how to deal with these different things. The fact is that he's gone outside of his sort of own little clique is, is, quite, a big, um, is quite a big statement here as well. And the last one is the fact is that he's using the Jewish leaders. And the fact is that the Roman force would have been uh, suppressing um, the, the local people, and the local people were Jewish, and they would have seen the elders as the people to stand up against the, the Roman rulers in, in the area. So the fact is that there's a good relationship there between the two is quite an interesting uh, statement as well. And I guess something that I did want to point out is that this story is also mentioned in Romans, uh, sorry, in Matthew 8. So again, if you want to see a different account, um, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I'll explain why they are different. So in this account, uh, the centurion sends out the elders uh, to have these conversations on his behalf. In, in Matthew 8, that bit doesn't happen. So it's the centurion himself goes out and has a conversation with Jesus face to face. Now, the most, common, the most common idea why there are two differences there is that when a leader in authority sends a delegation to speak on his behalf, it is as if that leader has gone himself. So actually to have that middle person for Matthew wasn't a, a significant enough for him to write down, but it was for Luke. And as we saw in Luke 1, uh, you saw the point of what he was trying to do with this story. It was trying to prove um, the... the um, it was trying to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. So again, to include as much people as possible into the account was trying to strengthen um, the the claim that Luke was making. So the first um, encounter is with the Jewish leaders. So, um, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy 
to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built our synagogue. So I guess you can hear in, the, it, in their voices that actually they, they want Jesus to help them. But they also know that, look, he's not a Jew. He isn't circumcised. Um, but look, can you help him out? Look, he's, he, he's a really nice guy. He's probably not as bad to us as he could be. Uh, he's built us this massive building. Look, his name is on the front of it. He's, he, he's a really nice guy. And actually, this is why, why he deserves your help. And I guess, and I guess you, you can always rely on the, um, uh, the Pharisees to sort of do the wrong thing for maybe the right reasons. Um, and I guess this mindset is something that's really played on me for quite some time, actually. And again, looking at how I go about my life, but it's this life of deserving. I, you, you deserve this. And I think the risk here is that you then strip away the rejoicingness of, that you have within God who gives you, gives you all that you have because you don't deserve it. And it strips away that rejoicing and that joy that you can have with God because you think, oh, well, I've done a little bit. Well, God is just repaying me for what I've done for him. And that mindset is exhausting. That philosophy, that, that achieving that I need to achieve to be able to get more is exhausting. It's restricting. It stops you being able to rest on the promises of God from that freely given grace. And that should relieve the pressure. That should relieve the pressure that you don't have to Go about your life trying to achieve something that is ultimately unachievable. And also this mindset of I deserve doesn't fit with the biblical message. And I think that this is one of, the, one of those very difficult things, which again, which is I feel like where I've been sort of quite interested in this recently, is around this whole thing with I deserve. I do this and now God does this. I've become a Christian, so I might have been nicer to people. I was nicer to a colleague at work. I was more generous. I'm tithing now. I'm giving to the charity box as I walk past it. I'm giving up my free time. I'm not watching Love Island as much as I used to. I'm, I'm doing all these things. But the expectation is that now I have an easier life. Now my kids are nicer. They... Uh, they don't throw food around on the table. Um, I don't have as much family issues. I, I can now, I'm now, Jesus is now blessing me with everything that I could have because I'm doing this thing for him. And again, it's, the Bible does not promise that. The Bible, as Tony was saying earlier, it's future glory. It's future for prayer, not for now. And I guess this is where that difficulty comes into, and that's where disappointment comes in, and that's where that delusion and the God that you want is starting to be created. And this self-esteemed society means just disappointment, and then you bring it to the foot of God and to the people around us. And I think, again, most arguments within marriage is around this idea that I deserve because I've done this, because I'm the most, I don't know, because I earn the most, because I do the washing up, I now deserve to rest. I looked after the kids all day, so now I deserve this. And again, this is where the arguments come from, because it doesn't match up. It's not about an I deserve society, and it creates a shallow, external, exalting Christians. And again, even worse, slightly, I sort of think here is that you deserve, you're putting that mentality, you're putting that philosophy onto other people. You're saying, well, yeah, you're such a good person. You deserve God to give you that. 
And I think that that, again, just solidifies, that sort of cements in that feeling that you deserve this. So, yeah, I do. And then that sort of bolsters you up. And then when you don't get it, that disappointment again. But again, it was never promised. And I think Matthew 6 talks about, actually, you need to pray and pay in private and give in private. So again, to try and bring out that whole idea that actually that external works that you're doing that just puffs you up, that exalts you, needs to be stripped away. And I believe that the elders came to Jesus with their own spin to try and create a false idea that this centurion was worthy. Not due to his holiness, but to his external signs of generosity. And also, I can sort of imagine now that maybe you would think that maybe the centurion has asked them to. I've worked in multiple organizations, um, from very large ones to uh, very small ones. And again, there's always this idea with, well, if you need somebody to do something for you, you need to go with, well, what have I done for you? And then you go to them and you sort of have a little, well, I helped you out here, I stayed an extra hour here, and I sent you these emails earlier. So you need to give me something back. But I think when we look at what the centurion says as Jesus is walking towards him, um, sort of shows a different story here. So uh, Luke 7 again. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you. So what have we learned about the centurion so far? That he's in the military, uh, that he's likely to be a Gentile, very, very likely to be a Gentile, but there's potentially he could be half Jewish maybe. Uh, but actually, even if he was half Jewish, that could be considered worse uh, within sort of the Jewish communities. Um, he was kind to his servants, and he had a good relationship with the religious leaders of the time. But actually now we're learning something far more deeper about this centurion. And actually when you look at that, what do I need to do to have this great faith, this first bit around the centurion knows himself. He knows where he stands before God. He knows where he stands before Jesus. He has a clear image of his own depravity before God in the eyes of God. And I think the risk here is that actually what he could have done is he could have looked at the rest of the people around him. He could have looked at the other people around him and thought, actually, I am worthy. I'm a nice person. I build a synagogue. I'm, I'm loved by the Jews who I'm sort of meant to be suppressing. Um, and actually, I'm not that bad. So actually, I'm just going to get on with life. And I think that this is, this is one of those lies that we tell ourselves again and again and again, that we look at other people and then we compare ourselves to them. We compare ourselves to actually, we're not that bad. And again, we can read the newspapers and we see how horrible everything is in the world. But actually, we then go, oh, actually, we're not doing that. We're not doing those things that, that is the latest crime in the, newspaper, in the newspaper. But then also, maybe we don't compare ourselves to those people. We start to compare ourselves to other Christians. And we go, well, look, those people aren't doing as well as me. I'm, I'm praying far more than they are. So actually, I'm a little bit better than they are. So I'm more worthy than them. But again, who should we be comparing ourselves to? What should we be comparing ourselves to? And it's to the word of God. Jesus says, you heard it said, do not murder, but I say, do not be angry. You heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, do not lust. You heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say, turn the other cheek. 
love your enemy. Put the spotlight of God's word onto your own life and explore your own evil thoughts, your own self-worth, your own pridefulness. And as Paul says in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Understanding your own unworthiness, your disqualifications, and your need for a great saviour is the first step in true repentance and, and receiving faith. For example, another encounter with Jesus that Tony preached on a few weeks ago in Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went away from there. Actually, I'm not reading all of that, sorry. A Canaanite woman from the region came out and, and was saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely obsessed, obsessed? oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right for the, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you deserve. And her daughter was healed instantly. The similarities between these two passages is very striking. Um, she owns her own shame. She owns her own poverty. She comes to the table with nothing. She, she owns the fact that she deserves the scraps from the... The scraps from the, the table. While at her most vulnerable, she cries out to God for help. To really understand faith, to really understand Christ, to really understand grace, you need to understand your disqualifications and your fallenness. In 1 John 1 8 and 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. The second stage of this, if you want to think about how, what steps I need to have great faith, you need to understand yourself. But now you need to understand Jesus. So in Luke 7, 7 to 8. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under, under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion really understands Jesus through his unworthiness. A poor Jewish man who can't even enter his house, who he can't even visit on the streets because of his unworthiness. That faith that the centurion has, has future faith. This, this idea that, you will, that my servant will be healed if you say so. He has assurances of that. It's not something that might happen, but he's got the hope, he's got the knowledge that this will happen if God wants, wills it. I command soldiers and they do what I say. You can heal my servant because of from what you say. But also the centurion is risking a lot with this statement. If we look at why Jesus was, was put to death, Luke says, claiming that he was Christ and a king. The centurion is using the same logic in this, that the centurion has the authority over men, 
because of where he's placed. Jesus has authority over nature because of where he's placed as king over the earth. But then we get to, then we get to Jesus' response. So the centurion understands himself and he understands who Jesus is. And the result is, is in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them, at, at him, and turned to the crowd that followed him. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who have been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The centurion had a faith that outperformed the whole of Israel. It is twice where Jesus has marveled in the Bible. And the other time, it was in Mark 6, when Jesus was starting out his ministry. In, um, and he says that he marveled at somebody's unbelief at his, because they rejected his teaching. And I think if I go back to the start, where I stand is, does God marvel more at my unbelief or at my belief? I mean, I think I know where I am. But I think this is where the challenge is of how can I get that unbelief to belief far more. And again, that minute amount of faith to being known as being great faith. But why was Jesus so amazed at this centurion? And again, we go through what the centurion says and does, which potentially demonstrates that, which is his knowledge of himself and the knowledge of Jesus. But also it's this man's background. Tony spoke last week about the idea that if somebody, um, if you were to do something quite adventurous uh, and it was somebody who likes to do it, I think Simon was the example of uh, bungee jumping. Yes, it's great, but Simon doesn't mind doing it. Whereas if we pushed Tony off, um, that is, there's a bit more to it than, than that. And this is where we learn about the centurion. The fact is that he would have likely have been a Gentile, he wouldn't have been brought up in the synagogue with all the sort of the sort of the doctrine and with all the the word of God being spoken over him. Uh, he was a soldier. He would have been a pagan. He would have been an invading force. Again, what comes with all of that as well? And also, he was rich. He had a servant. And we know what Jesus thinks about that. And we think about how difficult it is for somebody that's rich to give up everything that they have, and to sacrifice everything for that reason. And in Matthew 6, it talks about that it's easier for a camel to go, through the, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And with all of these things in play, and from what we've read, Jesus is amazed at this man's faith. His faith sees clearly not what he wants to see, not what he wishes to see, but he sees clearly with faith because he sees himself of who he is, and he sees Jesus from what who Jesus is. So I guess the ch challenge is, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as deserving mentally? If God is fair at all, I would get this and that, and I would be treated this way, and my life would be as easy as this. Do we see ourselves... Do we see ourselves deserving because we do nice things for the church, because we spend our time and we tithe? Do you look at the Christians around you and look down on them and think, well, I'm better than they are, so I deserve more than they do? 
And on this point, I would have said, if you've ever been hurt by a Christian who has looked down on you or has made you feel condemned in any way, know that they're not owning their own sin. In Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And not, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me read that again. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, do you, But the second point is, do you see Jesus for who Jesus really is, with authority and complete worthiness? 1 Corinthians. He is the image of God, the invisible one the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, in the heavens and here on earth, things we see and cannot see, thrones and lordships and rulers and powers. All things were created both through him and for him, and he is helper, prior, he is ahead prior to all else, in him all things hold together. And he himself is supreme, the head over the body, the church. He is the start of it all, firstborn from the realms of the dead. So in all things he might be the chief. For in him all the fullness was glad to, to dwell, and through him to reconcile all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, yes, things on earth, and also the things in heaven. Do you see your unworthiness? Do you know that Jesus, the Lamb of God, died on the cross for atonement for your sins while you were still a sinner? If you believe that, you're, if you believe that then you're experiencing biblical faith. Your faith will grow the more you understand God and the things that God says. So my, my, my prayer this week will be the same as the man in Mark 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief.